0: When Ford first conceived the Model T, it took 13 hours to assemble. Within five years, he was turning out a vehicle every 90 seconds. Of course, the real invention wasn't the car, it was the assembly line that built it. Pretty soon, other businesses had borrowed the same techniques. Seamstresses became button sewers, furniture makers, became knob-turners. It was the beginning and the end of imagination, all at the same time. Charles, I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. They need spokes, same as the others. No, They ought to make a better stove. Yeah? Then what would you do? If your dream was big enough, and you had the guts to follow it, there was truly a fortune to be made. thing blue on me. What? It's a Stanley steamer, the boiler blue. Oh, can you fix it? Ah. Sure. Sure I can fix it. Do you ever feel like that? (laughs) Like the world is changing so quickly and you just can't keep up? Sociologists call it rapid discontinuous change. Simple, it means what it means. Rapid, it means it's happening quickly. And discontinuous means that all the things that have happened up until now don't matter anymore because the world has changed so much that there's no connection to what's gone before. Like opening a bicycle repair shop just as cars are invented. Or like Kodak, who decided that the whole digital camera thing wasn't going to be a big thing, so they weren't going to go into that space and went out of business. The world is changing so much. And yet, every generation deals with it probably we're dealing with it more than anyone else ever has but it has it's not a it's not a new thing around 500 AD there was this guy called Benedict have you heard of him he was uh, did, he was really upset with where the church was at. He was really upset with where government was. There, there was corruption. Uh, there, there was uh, people buying favours off each other. The, he said the church, you could basically buy a job as a pastor, as a church, as a priest. And, he, uh, and to do that then you would get to collect all the money and you could set up these nice little income streams and you didn't even have to turn up at the church you were the priest of. Someone else collected the money for you and you just sort of Buried it away and built your own little financial empire off the backs of people who were giving little bits and it was a real mess. So Benedict thought, that's it, I've had enough, what I'm going to do is find this pure relationship with God again. And so he took his scriptures that he had and he went out into the desert by himself, Because the purest form of relationship with God, he discovered, was just him and God, and no one else around, where he could pray, where he could read and study. What he discovered, though, was as he read and studied and prayed, that this Christian life that he was trying to live in its purity was actually meant to be lived in community. You can't do it by yourself. So he did the next best thing. He gathered all the other people that were out in the desert as well, trying to do the same thing. And he said, how about we try and do this together? And so they gathered together in what became one of the first monasteries. And Benedict thought what we need to do is help people know how to live, help people know how to do this together. So Benedict wrote what's known as Benedict's Rule of Life. And it's about, I think it's about 72 things. If you want to be part of this community, if you want to live this pure religion, this pure relationship with God together in community, here's 72 things that you have to do. You can look it up. If, if you get bored at any point in the sermon, just feel free to Google it. Um, the only condition is if you Google it, you have to commit to doing at least 15 of those 72 things. And they're like there, there's rules for everything. For, for how you get up, how you go to bed, how you pray during the day, how many times you pray, how much silence you have, how much interaction you have, how you engage with the community around yourself, what happens if someone turns up at the door and wants somewhere to stay. What, if, what do we do if someone wants to join? All this stuff. Uh, 72 things. It's like this long, long list of stuff. And at, I think it's at the bottom. It's at the top of the bottom. I think it's at the bottom. It says, and none of this should be onerous or burdensome. <laughs> we do all of these things and we do it somehow with joy. <laughs> See, the church forever has been trying to work out how do we live in relationship with God? How do we actually do it? How do we take our broken, weak, frail humanity and how do we bring it into this place that we've just sung about? Jesus who is worthy of it all. Jesus who is the name above every name. Jesus who sits on the throne. Jesus who is this king above all kings and invites us into relationship. How do we marry the two together? And you guys have been talking for a number of weeks now about, about spiritual practices. And I get to, this is the last one, right? This, no, there's more. Beautiful. Okay, well then I'll just set some context and people can finish it off properly. But we've been um, talking about this for a while. What, is, what does it mean to, to try and find ways to, to connect with God? Try and find ways to live this life out. Every generation faces it differently. If you uh, grew up um, in the, when did I grow up? The 70s. Sorry, I'm I'm married to another it's Vicky's birthday today. She she said I'm not allowed to talk about it, but it is. She hits her mid-50s officially today, and uh, I shouldn't talk about that either. But, um, (sighs) yeah, well, we should stop and sing happy birthday. Matt's ready to do a dance, and we're ready. Yeah, yeah, a birthday conga line or something. Um it was like when I grew up, it was like you had to read your Bible every day and pray, right? Scripture union did notes, it was all these things you could resources to to have a quiet time. Quiet time was the thing, right? And you had to get up in the morning at 4 a.m and have your quiet time before everyone. you, you know, stuff, right? Remember that? And not being a morning person, that was tricky for me quiet times became a difficult thing but to be a good christian you had to have one apparently every generation tries to work it out how do we how do we grapple with this idea of living some sort of connected life with god my favorite psalm is psalm 84 uh, i just want to read it to you You probably know it. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of hosts? I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord; my heart and flesh cry out for the living God. And this psalm is written by someone who probably once a year would travel to Jerusalem to uh, to connect with God at the temple, because that was the place. Back in those days, where you connected with God, you had to go to the temple because that's where God was, and so you'd make these pilgrimages to the temple at least once a year, and and there you would encounter God. The rest of the rest of the year, you're trying to live out all this stuff, but you had this one moment a year where you can go and worship with other people and create, uh, like have, uh, present your sacrifices and do those things. Sorry, my phone keeps locking and unlocking itself and so this longing my heart and my flesh cry out just to be there good news is God's with us all the time now right the church is the temple we are the temple we don't have to wait for a year to get there but what does it mean for us to long for that presence of God Even a sparrow finds a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she places her young near your altars, Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How happy are those who reside in your house, who praise you continuously. Happy are those people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Ever thought about pilgrimage? There's a spiritual discipline to think about. Going somewhere with the intention of encountering God. Vicky and I did it just recently. We went to Europe and um, we've had five weeks in Europe, and the heart of that was built around a pilgrimage of walking Hadrian's Wall, walking part of Hadrian's Wall across the top of England in June when it was supposed to be 11 or 12 degrees, but was actually 28. We took a whole suitcase full of winter clothes and most of the time checked it into baggage storage places and didn't even open it. But we set off on this pilgrimage. And the thing you discover about pilgrimage is that sort of it mirrors life. It never quite goes the way you thought it would go. We'd planned this thing, we'd we'd booked accommodation, we'd booked a a transfer company to come and pick up our bags in the the morning and take it to the place we were staying at night so we could just walk with day packs and whatever. The first day was about 16 kilometres of walking and the first 14 kilometres we didn't even see any of Hadrian's wall. And then the bit that we saw was tiny, I should have brought a photo of it, it's tiny, but it's actually the most significant part of the wall. It's where the um, the design committee, the project management team, did, did you know Hadrian's Wall was built in 122 AD by Emperor Hadrian? It was like the top of the empire. It was like to, to mark the boundary of the empire and to keep those nasty Scots out of England. So he built the wall to keep the Rangers out. And, and um, but they, So they built this wall from coast to coast across the top of England. And... Um, they started building it, and they, start, they built from, uh, from east to west, and as they were building across, they got to this point where they realized that it was going too slow and costing too much money. Doesn't sound like a building project today, does it? Going too slow, costing too much money, so they, they changed from building the wall 10 feet wide to building the wall 6 feet wide. And there is this bit of wall remaining where the change actually happened, and so you see this big bit of ten-foot-wide wall, and butting up against it is six-foot-wide wall. And for the rest of the wall, east, uh, west, they um, it was thinner, narrower. And this is one, and and I should have known when we saw that bit of the wall that God was trying to tell me something right then. This pilgrimage that you think is going to happen one way is not going to go to plan. Here's where they change, and very soon it's all going to change for you as well. We got to the end of the first day; we were pretty exhausted. It was hot. Uh, we got we got to the place uh, we were staying, uh, had dinner, relaxed, had a pint or two, and um, rehydrated for the next day. We got up the next day. The next day was the longest day of walking for our trip. We are doing a three day walk. The next day was the longest day. It was going to be about about 20 k's or something like that and um it was even hotter than the next day and this day was the rough day everyone said this is the tough day this is where the, you go up a hill and then along and down a hill and then along then up a hill and then along and and that's how it was all day and we got it hotter and hotter there was no place to uh, to get water we were carrying big packs with lots of water but we were ch- plowing through it really quickly and um we got about halfway along and Vicky and I looked at each other and said, why are we doing this? <laughs> Apparently this was supposed to be fun. And, you know, we were starting to cramp up. We were, we were trying to um, uh, keep, keep our pace up. When we were started, when he started that morning, it took, an, I think it was another 6K walk up to the wall to where it actually started and walked along where the wall was. And um, we were doing about, a kilometre every 20 minutes up and down these hills. By the, end, by the middle of the afternoon, we were doing a kilometre every 45 minutes. It was rugged, and it was hot. And we kept seeing the same people. The people that embarrassed us the most were an American family, um, three grandsons, their dad and his dad, doing this family trip. His dad was 77 and had Parkinson's and was going past us. Like, you know you're in trouble, right? And uh, so we were walking and we were just getting... Vicky was starting to look like she had heat stroke. It was was really not... We weren't going well and we we decided we have to actually stop somehow. We can't actually keep pushing ourselves like this today. And yet when we were doing it, there was nowhere to stop. We were miles away from the road. We were miles away from towns. We had no idea what was going to happen. And it was it was getting a bit distressing actually and we were coming down this steep hill and almost running up the hill past us was this woman um, who looked quite healthy and fit but she was in her mid to late 60s and she's sort of powering up this hill and uh, the, the joy of these pilgrimages is you often get to stop and just chat with people, and every, everyone's looking for an excuse to stop for a minute. So we were chatting with her, and she was asking how we were doing. said, I, oh, you know, it's a bit rugged, and um, discovered that she um, she was just running up to the top and running back down again, or something or other. And um, she said, we said to her, like, is there somewhere we can get off this trail and like catch a taxi or catch a bus to where we were staying that night? And she goes, oh yeah, just a couple of miles up there. Um, there's a big Roman fort. If you go to the Roman fort, there's a, there's a museum and stuff and you can, you can go down to the road and there's a bus stop there and you can just catch a bus into the, into the town you're going to. Said, All right, a couple of miles. You know, you know when you ask country people how far and they say a couple of miles? <laughs> so she said, she said, but like, you know, she's heading up this way. We're coming down. She said, but if, um, if, I, if I get back there when you're there, I'll give you a lift. I've got my van here. And we went, yeah, yeah, right, Sure. And so we kept going and a couple of miles seemed to be a lot longer than a couple of miles. And then we walked past the entrance where we needed to get into this ford. And so we had to turn around and come back. And we finally made our way, found out where the bus stop was, and we were walking down this long gravel driveway towards the road to the bus stop. And wouldn't you know it, hear this voice behind us going, Oh hello. And we jumped in her van and she took us to where we were staying. Dropped us off at the at the door, and on the way we're having this conversation. She said, "Oh, I really? I really love these sort of places. I, I, I grew up around here. I live somewhere else, but I come back every year and walk the wall and walk this area. I just love it. It's like this." She said, "I don't know if you've heard of this, but the ancient Celts had these things called thin places. Have you heard of thin places? It's these places where where it seems like heaven and earth are are just." So close together, you can reach through the other side of the curtain and touch it. She goes, yeah, if I ever, if I ever die and, and come back again, I want to come back as a pagan because, um, you know, they really get this stuff. And I thought, oh, okay, we're talking about thin places, but we're talk- coming at them from different angles here. And yet it was just this gentle reminder from God that in life, one of the things that happens is that sometimes we have to accept kindness and hospitality from strangers she dropped us off at the door where the B&B were staying and the lady um, who runs it met us she goes you guys look exhausted we said thank you we do we feel exhausted she said and she was just so caring and just looked after us so well and um, she said you're really stupid walking on days like today she said no one around here normally does it and uh, we made the decision not to walk the next day to do some other things around the area and not to walk the next day, and we were both feeling a bit, oh, we were coming to do this. We spent five weeks and all this money to go to Europe, really to put this thing in the middle of it, and oh, such a mess. When we did some other things the next day, visited some tourist places, some other Roman forts and stuff, we realised all the people we'd met on the wall the day before were also doing the same thing, and they weren't walking that day either. That made us feel a little bit better. But it never quite worked out the way we wanted to, and yet this, this idea of being on pilgrimage, of, of actually encountering, and we did, we encountered God in all sorts of ways. We encountered God in the kindness of other people. We encountered God in just sitting down in this cool breeze. Uh, I sat down, I was, I was cramping up like crazy, and I was dehydrated, and I sat down in this lounge room in the b and and they had this lovely little cocker Spaniel called Branson, named after the pickle. And Branson just came and sort of jumped up on the lounge next to me and just sat there, like, just, like, just stayed there for hours. And then wherever I walked, Branson followed me around that in b Like he probably would have come into our room if we'd let him. And uh, he, like, there was just these moments of grace in this crazy thing as we thought we were doing this great thing where we were going to encounter God. It was actually, actually, in reflecting on it afterwards, we encountered God in all sorts of ways, and lots of them we missed while we were in it. Because it was hard and because it hurt, and because in the middle of the night I was screaming in pain because every single muscle in my body decided at three o'clock in the morning was the best time to cramp up. And not, you know know how you get a cramp in the night, right? And your foot cramps up or something? Like this was both feet and my calves and my hamstrings and my quads and every other muscle. So you can't stretch it out because there's no other muscles to lean on to stretch that one out. Oh man, it was agony. Blessed are those whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they passed through the valley of Bacca, the valley of Bacca, the valley of tears, the valley of weeping, as you pass through the pain. This was if from where these guys wrote this psalm to get to Jerusalem. You had to go through this valley that was dry and it was difficult and it was a desert valley. As they passed through the valley of weeping, they make it a source of springs. Isn't that interesting? They make it a source of springs. As the people whose heart is set on pilgrimage journey through the valley of tears, they make it a place of springs. Let that sink in. And then the autumn rain will come and cover it with blessings. That's really interesting. I've been wrestling with this passage for years. What does that mean? Does that mean that that where we go... When our hearts are set on pilgrimage, when we desire to be in God's presence, and we're longing for that, the places that we walk, we actually transform. Do you know Bill Johnson, American pastor? Bill Johnson says we can. Uh, you, you know when you're, you're in, you you imagine you're in a party, right? You're in a party and everyone's having a good time, and there's someone walks in who's in a bad mood. You know how that the whole air just gets sucked out of the room, and the whole atmosphere can change just with one person. Walking into a room, Bill Johnson says we can either be um, a, a thermometer or a thermostat. We can either reflect the temperature of the room or we can set the temperature of the room. And I think this psalm is perhaps saying that 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 the places we go when our hearts are set on pilgrimage, when we're longing after God, the places that we go, we actually we actually can set the temperature. We actually bring something of the kingdom. That, that changes the atmosphere of the rooms we walk into, that changes the atmosphere of the conversations we walk into. And then God somehow comes and backs it up, and the rains come, and the pools come, and, and suddenly this desert place, this place of weeping and tears is transformed. They go from strength to strength, each appears before God in Zion. Lord God of the armies, hear my prayer. Listen, God of Jacob. Consider our shield, God. Look on the face of your anointed one. And then this passage that I'm sure you know. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Imagine that if if you could only, if you could access God for just a few days a year. If you could be in God's actual presence for just a few days per year. This longing to, like, I could just be there for a day just one day there is better than a day anywhere better than a thousand days anywhere else just one day is that how we feel about god we just want to be in your presence god i'd rather stand i'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my god than live in the tents of wicked people i'd rather be a gatekeeper a doorkeeper just so i can be close just so I can be close have you had those moments where you've just felt like God is just there those thin places where God is just right there and you are in his presence and 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 you just know it I've been in a, I've had moments where I've felt like I've been in rooms that Jesus has walked into and let me tell you it's not comforting it's terrifying when you actually experience The glory of God, it is not just, I mean, it is. It's lovely and comforting, but it is terrifying at the same time to think we are in this place. But do we long for it? For God is a sun and shield. He grants favour and honour. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. Happy is the person who trusts in you. So how do we do it? If this is is the place that God is calling us to be, in his presence, acknowledging his presence with us all the time, we're never out of God's presence, right? It just feels like it sometimes. And the reason it feels like it, I really believe, is that we don't take the opportunities to create the space to be there. Now, there are thin places. There are places where it seems like God is closer to us than others. And and for all of us, they're different. There are some places that... um, Lots of people, it seems like God is present in some places. like. But for all of us, we have different ways of connecting with God. Don't we? I have a theory. I'm going to write a book about this one day, if I ever actually have time to write a book. That the, that the way we encounter God when we first encounter him is actually what becomes our default position, that when we're looking for God, we go back to that place. So if if the first actual realisation and encounter of God we have is sitting on a mountaintop somewhere, when we're really stressed and really need to find God again, guess where we're going to go? Back to a mountaintop. I know God was here once. Or if it was in the middle of a worshipping community when the music is loud and people are just worshipping their hearts out, then we go back to that. Because we've met God there, we want to meet God again. And so we keep putting ourselves in this place. This is what spiritual practices are all about. They're actually about trying to create space to reconnect with God, create space to live in that ongoing, continual relationship with God. The problem is we confuse it. The problem is we make it so difficult. By all the things that we should do to be a good Christian, Do you know what I mean? And we hear about other things, oh, I'll do that as well. Oh, I'll do that as well. I'll do that as well. And suddenly, it all becomes so overwhelming, we do nothing. I was chatting to a mate the other day who was telling me the story of his grandfather. His grandfather grew up as a farmer in the country, and he, he said, as a kid, I remember my grandpa being just grumpy and awful and horrible and like, demanding of everything. he The only time he'd ever talk really was when he'd get up to go to sit at the dinner table and his dinner wasn't ready. And he'd complain to his wife that the food's not ready on time. And then he'd eat his meal and then he'd go back and sit in the lounge and do nothing. Until he got grumpy again. And he didn't talk, he was hard to engage with, he was just very distant. And he said, one day my grandma and grandpa moved house. They moved to a different town. He retired, moved to a different town. And they had to find a new doctor. And uh, he went to this new doctor. And the first appointment he had with the new doctor, the doctor's just looking at all his medications and all his history and stuff. And the doctor says, why are you taking all of these tablets? He said, because this one actually counteracts this one. (laughs) And this one counted, he said, said, what we're going to do is we're just going to stop all your medication, just put you on a couple of things that we know you need, and we're going to stop all the rest. And he's of that generation, if the doctor says that you do it. And so, just did it. And my friend said, within weeks, his personality had changed. He was fun. He laughed. He told jokes. He interacted with his Grandkids. He, 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 lived a completely different life than what my friend had seen him as a kid growing up with. Because he just added another thing and added another thing. Doctors, you know, oh, you got that wrong. We'll just add that now. You know, I'm not dissing medicine. I'm not doing that. What I'm trying to use it as an example of is we do this with spiritual practices. We add another thing and we add another thing and we add another, and eventually we become immobilized by all these things we have to do to be a good Christian. You have to go to Bible study and you have to go to church and you have to read your Bible every day and you have to pray every day and you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do... You, have to do you know what I mean, right? What if it's not that complicated? <laughs> what if we're just... In, in our in our desire to live this life well, what if we've overcomplicated it by adding all these other things? For a number of years now, Vicky and I have been part of an international scattered lay monastic movement. We're both officially monks. You, we've taken vows in a monastic order. And um, we're trying to shape our lives around some things that that give some sense of order to it without um, without becoming onerous or burdensome. It's really interesting when you look back at early monasteries and early, you think back to even a few hundred years ago, before the Industrial Revolution, when people just lived in their little villages, around. think of England, right? Little villages around, everyone lived in their village, and, it's, and life is governed by two things in those villages. It's governed by when the sun goes up and when the sun goes down. And some days, the distance between that is shorter or longer, depending on what season you're in. And it's often governed by the church bells from the church in the centre of town that call people to prayer or call people to worship. And that's how life was lived. You'd get up when the sun got up, you'd work, you'd, you'd stop when you couldn't see anything anymore because there was no electricity, There's just candles. And so in summer you'd work long hours and in winter you'd hunker down, you'd live these different rhythms for different seasons and, and the church bells would ring and you would pray And then someone invented the clock. And it used to be, in English villages, there was like one central clock in London and these telegraph wires that ran out to the post offices and all the other villages that the clock could be set by. So you had one clock in a village that reflected the master time of what the clock back in London was saying. And then someone invented this amazing thing called watch so now you could have your own clock and now you could set your own time for things and what it happened was bosses went this is amazing with the invention of a clock and the invention of electricity we now know no longer need to live the normal rhythms that the world might live for us what we can do is we can make people turn up to start work at a certain time because they all know what time it is because they've all got a watch and we, don't, we can turn the lights on and there'll be electricity and they can work even if it's dark. So we can start earlier and we can finish later and suddenly life changed because we're not bound by the seasons anymore. We're not bound by these natural rhythms anymore. Spiritual practices are helping us try to get back to finding a different way of ordering our lives in a, life, in a world that is so busy, that is changing all the time, where, where what happens yesterday will pay no um, connection with what happens tomorrow, this rapid discontinuous change. How do we set a rhythm for ourselves? Now, I'm going overseas in a couple of weeks for work, and when I get back, I'm talking to Ben. We might run a workshop of actually how to write this up for ourselves, how to write a rule of life for yourself. If you're interested in doing that, we might do that uh, in in a month or so. But I'll tell you two things that I do that try and keep me grounded. One is that I set my watch. You can use them for useful things. I set an alarm for 12 o'clock, for 12 noon every day, and I just stop and I pray the Lord's Prayer wherever I am. That's simple, right? Let me tell you how hard that is. Oh, see, now my watch has set another alarm. For, stop listening to me. Sorry, I can't help you with that on Apple Watch. Stop listening to me. I can't help you with that. Well, it interrupts. This this stupid twelve o'clock Lord's prayer thing interrupts everything all the time. As a pastor. There are there are moments that are really special to us and one of those is Mondays. If you do you have Monday off? Do you work Monday? Monday's a special day because on Monday you get emails from people who are in church on Sunday offering support and encouragement and uh, feedback about what happened the day before. You don't get those? Oh, sorry. Have you got Ben's email address? Anyway. And I remember once I, I, I'd i preached on Sunday and we had this incredible service and I got got into the office and I had a couple of meetings first thing Monday morning and I opened up my computer and I'm reading my emails and I had one of those really helpful feedback sort of emails and um, I started to respond to it. <laughs> and as I'm doing that, my watch starts to beep that it's 12 o'clock. And my brain goes to this. In any second now, I'm going to pray... Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I'm going to have to deal with something before I can pray that. And it's amazing how many times that simple thing of just praying the Lord's Prayer at noon every day interrupts and changes things. The other thing I do is at night before I go to bed, I try and practice gratefulness. The um, ancient monastics called it the prayer of examine, to look back across the day and say, what am I grateful for today? Where have I seen God at work today? It's interesting, when I first started doing that, I, um, I would something would happen during the day and I'd say to myself, oh, I have to remember that and be grateful for that tonight. I did that for a while and I suddenly, suddenly clicked in my brain one day. It takes me a while for these things sometimes. I could just be grateful for it now. <laughs> I don't have to wait till I'm going to bed tonight and to start to live with this posture of gratefulness or this posture of just noticing when God's at work. It's amazing what happens to your day when you go, oh, that was God. Didn't see that coming. Or I created some space today. And God did something. I just sat in silence for five minutes and God actually spoke to me. Are we deliberately, actively carving out space for God to speak? That's the challenge for us. It's not about loading ourselves up with things to do. The world gives us enough things to do. Every self-help book will give you enough things to do. I'm reminded of this movie called Smoke. Has anyone seen Smoke? You probably don't even remember it. It's a 1995 independent American art house film, so I'm sure you've all seen it. You can go and hire it and watch it if you want to. I wouldn't advise it. Sorry? Vicky says no. It's it's, it's not really worth it. But there's, see, there's, it's, about, it's about this guy called Augie. Augie's played by Harvey Keitel. The reason I watch it is Harvey Keitel is one of my favourite actors and I watch most things that he's in. And um, Harvey Keitel plays this gruff um, cigar store owner. He owns uh, Brooklyn Cigar Company on the corner of 3rd Street and 7th Avenue in Brooklyn. And... um, the story is just about of this interacting, weaving in of lives of people that come in and out of the store and buy tobacco and stuff. And one of his regular customers is a guy called Paul Benjamin, played by William Hurt. And Paul Benjamin is um, a, a writer who has writer's block. He can't write. And uh, he can't write because he had this traumatic incident that happened. His wife had been killed. Um, his young wife, who was pregnant, five months pregnant, had got caught in the crossfire of a bank holdup. And got shot and died. And he was just racked with grief and had this writer's block. He used to come in and buy his tobacco from Augie. And there's this scene where Augie's, it's at nighttime and Augie's shutting up the shop. And it's so, like, you know those Brooklyn, you know those American things where they sort of shut the doors and then they, they pull this grill thing down in front of the shop? He's, he's pulling the grill down and, and Paul runs up and just says, Are you still open? And he lets him into the shop for one last sale for the day. And he's just standing there and he notices that there's this camera on the shop counter. And Paul looks at Augie and says, oh, I didn't know you took pictures. Okay, I'll do it anyway. Right. And Augie uh, says, Well I guess you could call it a hobby. It doesn't take me more than about five minutes a day, but but I do it every day, rain or shine. I I do this thing it's sort of I'm sort he said rain or shine, hail or sleet or snow. He said I'm sort of like the postman. And um, Paul says to him, so you're not just some guy who pushes coins across a counter? And Augie says, well, that's what people see, but it's not necessarily who I am. And then it fades out, and the next scene, Paul and Augie are back at Augie's apartment. And they're sitting at a table, and there's, there's all these photo albums piled up. And Paul is flicking through the albums, and every photo looks the same. It's actually a photo of the shop from the same perspective. And Paul says, well, they're all the same. (laughs) He said, that's right, more than 4,000 pictures. I wrote this down. That's right, more than 4,000 pictures of the same place, the corner of 3rd Street and 7th Avenue at 8 o'clock in the morning, 4,000 straight days in all kinds of weather, that's why I can never take a vacation. I've got to be in my spot every morning, every morning in the same spot at the same time. And Paul says, I've never seen anything like this. Or well, he says, it's my project. You could say it's my, it's my life's work. And Paul's sort of, you know, flicking through this album after album, page after page. each page has like four photos on it and just flicking through. He says, it's amazing. He said, I'm not sure I get it, though. (laughs) Like, I mean, what was it that gave you the idea to do this? He said, I don't know, it just came to me one day. It's my corner. It's just one little part of the world, but things happen there, too, just like everywhere else. He said, it's a record of my little spot. Paul says, "It's, it's kind of overwhelming. And he's sort of just, you know, Flicking through, and they finish one out, he puts another one in front of him and flicking through. And, and Augie looks at him and says, you'll never get it if you don't slow down, my friend. Paul looks up him and says, well, what do you mean? He says, I mean, you're going too fast. You're hardly even looking at the pictures. He says, but they're all the same. And Augie says, they're all the same but each one is different from every other one. You've got your bright mornings and your dark mornings. You've got your summer light and your autumn light. You've got your weekdays and your weekends. You've got your people in overcoats and galoshes, and you've got your people in T-shirts and shorts. Sometimes the same people, sometimes different ones. And sometimes the different ones become the same, and the same ones disappear. It so says the earth revolves around the sun, and every day the light from the sun hits the earth at a different angle. Paul looks up at him and says, slow down, huh? And Augie just says, yeah, that's what I'd recommend. And so Paul starts to slow down, and on the, on the screen, they just start to show slow transitions of these photos, and everyone's different. And Augie says, you know how it is. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, time creeps on its petty pace slowly looking at the photos and suddenly he goes oh, look it's Ellen it's his wife five months pregnant and all he says yeah that's her right she's in quite a few from that year she must have been on her way to work turns out she worked at the bank where the robbery was and probably this photo was the morning that she was killed and Paul just sort of breaks down in tears. You'll never get it if you don't slow down. You'll never get it if you don't slow down. Time rushes on. There's always tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. But you'll never get it if you don't slow down. and Make some space for God. Why? Two reasons. One, it's because he he created you to be. He created you to be in relationship with him. And he is consistent and he never changes. And we're the ones that get flitty and flighty and dart around doing all these other things. If you want to know who you really are, if you want to know who you're created to be, slow down and create some space to just Be with God. And secondly, because until we can do that, we're never going to be effective for his kingdom. You can do all the things you want to. You can do all the activity you want to. You can run all the programs and all the ministries you want to. I had an old pastor when I was growing up who used to say this, whatever you do, even things you think you're doing for God, if it's not the thing that God is asking you to do, then it's sin. How do we know what God's asking us to do? Just slow down and ask him. <laughs> All these things I do, why am I running all these things? Why am I leading this and leading this and doing this and serving here? Why am I doing all that, God? Have I just become someone that's just taken on extra things and extra things and extra things and extra things and I'm now taking this ray of medicine that's actually numbing me to actually being who God wants me to be? Am I doing too much when I should be slowing down? You'll never get it if you don't slow down, my friend. Happy are those whose heart is set on the pilgrim's path, who long for the courts of the Lord. They're the ones who change the world. They're the ones who go through the valley of weeping. They're the ones who go through the valley of tears and make it a place of springs. And let me tell you, our world is full of dry, dusty places that are full of the valley of tears, right? and God's just waiting for us to have our hearts and our minds focused on him and to bring transformation to the world. That's why we do this. That's why spiritual practices are important. That's why prayer is important. That's why creating space for God, where silence and solitude and all those other things are important. Because we get to learn to hear God's voice. And we get to act in the way that he calls us to act. And we become who we're actually meant to be. You'll never get it if you don't slow down. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that it's really easy to be busy. It's really easy to allow all sorts of things good things to crowd into our lives and we run around and we get to the end of every day and we fall into bed exhausted and then we get up and we do it all again tomorrow Lord would you help us to take a look at ourselves to take an inventory of ourselves to work out how to structure our days around you rather than around our clock, rather than around all the pressures that are on us. How do we structure our day around you, God? Would you teach us that? Not in a way that's onerous or burdensome, but in a way that brings life, that creates space where we hear your voice, where we respond to you, where we hear your call to be people who transform our community people who transform our neighbourhoods, people who transform our families. In this world that is crazy and changing around us all the time, Lord, would you help us to anchor our souls in you? Give us the grace to make some tough decisions this week about how we create space for you.